Welcome to the podcast series from the Voices in Leadership webcast conversations at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.hsph.me voices. Good afternoon and welcome to Voices in Leadership. I'm Eric Anderson, the Deputy Director of this program, and I have the distinct honor of introducing our special guest. Peter Shumlin is a recognized leader. During his three terms as the 81st governor of Vermont, Governor Shumlin positioned his state at the forefront of progressive policies, making it the first to guarantee universal pre-K education, passing a mandatory GMO labeling law, and achieving near universal care coverage with the lowest rate of, of uninsured in the country. Governor Shumlin led on climate change. Throughout his time in office, Vermont consistently ranked among the top states in solar energy jobs per capita and enacted a number of laws to boost renewable energy production. Because of his record, Governor Shumlin was invited by President Obama to the Paris Climate Summit to push for global climate agreement. Governor Shumlin's tenure was also marked by his leadership during times of crisis. In 2011, he helped Vermont recover from the devastation of Tropical Storm Irene. He also turned the nation's eyes to the problem of opiate and heroin addiction by dedicating his entire 2014 State of the State Address to the issue and for pushing policies to treat addiction as the health care crisis that it is. Before I turn the session over to today's interviewer, Professor John McDonough, Director of the Center for Executive and Continuing Professional Education, please join me as we welcome Governor Peter Shumlin to the Voices in Leadership series at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Thank you. So, Governor Shemlin, welcome. It's great to be here. Thank you for joining us here today. It's a pleasure to have you. My pleasure. We wanted to talk to you about a specific topic. There are so many things from your time as governor we could talk about, but we wanted to focus on one. Uh, last week, as you know, Senator Bernie Sanders from Vermont, with 16 other senators, released a single-payer Medicare for All financing plan for the U.S. healthcare system. It would be a radical transformation from the current system. Right. And you have a very unique set of insights on single payer. You ran for governor in 2010, promising to deliver a single payer legislatively to the people of Vermont. In 2011, you put through a bill to create the roadmap to get to single payer by 2017. The only thing that was really missing was a financing plan and you moved to release your financing plan in late 2014 and then surprising everyone who was watching, which we were a lot of people across the country, announced that the state couldn't do it and you were pulling back and suspending the drive to single payer. So the important question is, what happened? And how did that look? And what was that about? And why was there the pullback? Good question. And I just want to start by thanking you. Uh, Professor McDonough and I know each other from back when we were both in the legislative trenches together. I want to thank An Eric Anderson for inviting me down and, and, uh, and letting me on this stage. I've got to give a shout out to my favorite professor, Dr. William Shaw, who's here and who really wrote the blueprint for Vermont's single-payer system. And I'll say this about Dr. Shaw just to, to keep you understanding since we're talking about leadership and how leadership works. When I called Dr. Shaw as a president of the Senate, and I've been committed to single payer all my life, and I was thinking I might run for governor, but that wasn't my motivating call. And I said, Dr. Shaw, you've built single payer systems all over the world. 
I need you to come help us put the facts together to build one in Vermont. And he said, uh, Senator, I've given up on America. <laughs> and I said, well, wait a minute. Vermont's different than the rest of America. And why don't you just come up and visit us and, and we'll talk about it. Well, I convinced him to come up and we slowly roped him in and he helped write the blueprint for our plan. So to go to your question, why couldn't we get it done? Uh, I think there are a few things that really reflect on as we're talking to students and, and docs and healthcare providers uh, about this challenge. Let me start by saying uh, Senator Sanders, Senator Warren have it right. The best way to get to single payer, and I say this as one who's been in the trenches, done more work on this issue than any other governor in America, I would argue, actually figuring out how the mechanics would work. If we can simply say that we have a great single payer healthcare system in America, we, the only reason we all wish to get to be 65 years old is because of Medicare. The rest of us, uh, for, for all the other reasons, none of us want to get that old, but 65 <laughs> Medicare. Why not reduce over time the age discrimination in America against affordable health care that should be a right and not a privilege and reduce that age group until we finally get to zero? That's the simple way and logical way to get there. Having said that, I don't think there's too many people that believe that uh, the current Congress and the current president are going to lead us to the promised land on health care reform. So the question is, what went wrong in Vermont? Why couldn't we get there? And I'm going to try to distill it to a very brief summary of the challenges I faced. The first is, when you actually get into the numbers and you describe to your people what the, when you move from a premium-driven system to one that's supported by taxes. The tax rates in Vermont were quite staggering compared to what other people were paying. Now I say compared to because you have to remember, we're paying for this right now. The problem we have in Vermont as well as the rest of the country is the healthcare system is broken. I don't think there's many docs, nurses, hospital administrators who say, wow, there's a beautiful system. It's a bright future for us. Costs keep rising. Pay keeps reducing for primary care providers. They're going out of business. The fee-for-service model is perfect. Let's stick with it. So the system's broken. There's need for change. And the question is, why couldn't we get there as a state? The first is, when I came out and said, listen, to move from a premium-driven system to a tax-based system, you're going to have to have an 11.5% payroll tax. You're going to have to have a, a top 9.5% income tax on top of our current state income tax. I don't think that was even the biggest problem. The biggest problem was legislators were quietly saying to me, hey, Governor, right now you have costs for the last 20 years that have gone up in health care 7 or 8% on average a year for over 20 years. Are you telling us that we're going to have to raise taxes 7 or 8% every year? And I couldn't with a straight face turn to them and say, no. We've got this figured out. There's going to be so much cost containment immediately, you won't have to do that. So I would argue on the tax lesson for a state, not all 50 states, you know, a state, when you have neighboring challenges, it's very tough to make the sale to legislators and to constituents, hey, this is a great thing. You're finally going to have health care as a right, not a privilege, but you're going to have tax rates that are quite high, replacing premiums, so it's not money you're not spending now, but there's winners and losers. So that was the biggest problem was money. Second problem, you have to have reserves like an insurance company, right? You need to have a huge reserve. We found in our little state that the reserve, when we did the research, was going to be roughly 10 years of our state bonding capacity. 
we literally would have had to say to Vermonters, to build that reserve, there can be no investment in infrastructure for a decade because we need that money, that current money, to build adequate reserves. Third problem, and probably the biggest, uh, was one of federal partnership. So as you can imagine, the challenge for a state is, since we have Medicaid, Medicare, frankly, the federal government pays more than the state for health care. Vermont state pays about 18% of health care in Vermont. The feds pay a much larger percentage. We had an unpredictable partner in Washington. So I kept flying down there trying to figure out ways to work with a secretary who really the Obama administration wanted to work with us. But what happened was, as you will recall, in Obama's last two years, congressional, congressional elections happened and the U.S. Senate and the House went Republican. The House had already repealed Obamacare 64 times, 34 times, whatever it was, they were obsessed. Now they had a Senate who was going to do that. I was trying to get waivers for our little state that would have helped to equalize some of the challenges that we had when we moved from the current system to our new system. And literally the secretary said to me, listen, we want to work with you, we've wanted to work with you, but we don't have the capacity to cut out special deals for Vermont while we're up there on the hill trying to defend Obamacare, and you know what happened there. The biggest challenge I had was timing. And I say that looking historically at my leadership challenges. I and every other Democratic governor in the country with a brain embraced Obamacare. We did. We thought it was the way to reduce uninsured rates, which it was. So we built our exchanges, which most Republican governors refused to do. That turned out to be my biggest downfall because we believe, don't forget, there's a federal bill. We didn't have anything to do with writing it. It was sent to us. And the notion was, as President Obama found, that technology would be able to allow you for the first time to push a button, choose your health care plan. It would check with the IRS on your income tax return. In Massachusetts and Vermont, it would check with your tax, state tax department, because we already subsidized as two states, the only two in the country, at a higher level than Obamacare. We'd check all that, and you'd get a bill in the mail, you'd choose your plan, and everything would be beautiful. The technology simply couldn't deliver on the promise and the time frame that had been laid out. And as you know, there was no amending Obamacare because the Republican Congress refused. So the result was we all had exchanges that blew up. Every governor in the country that built an exchange in different levels, including the President of the United States, had exchanges that couldn't deliver. So we had to fire our technology people, hire new folks, go in and rebuild exchanges. And as you can imagine, I lost tremendous credibility as a leader on health care when I couldn't deliver something as simple, theoretically, as expanding uninsured on Medicare and Medicaid. Um, on Medicaid. So Obamacare, the, and then you remember political history, Obamacare became a political football, health care reform became a political football, the timing couldn't have been worse. So the answer is all those things came together so that I couldn't look the Vermonters in the eye and say, this is the time to make this step. The biggest problem was we hadn't figured out cost containment. So again, going back to the notion that taxes would be raised as fast as healthcare costs are going up. Those things all came together to deliver the most difficult thing that I've ever had to do, which is turn to the people that elected me and say, listen, we've done the work, we've done the research, we know how the system would work. This is not fiscally responsible to do in Vermont right now particularly until we get the cost containment piece under control. Would you, would you define the choice that you had to make, and it must have been a really wrenching choice for you, 
Was that a policy decision or was that a political decision, do you think? How would you characterize uh, it, the it, choice it, you had to make? There always both. I mean, you've been in politics. I couldn't get the votes. I, there was no way I was going to get the votes in either the House or the Senate to pass a single-payer plan that I wanted to pass. No way. I had progressive senators coming to me saying, you know, what if we just slowed down? The most progressive, I'm talking about from the progressive party. What if we just slowed down? What if we just invited people into the state employee pool as a first step? I was like, are you kidding me? We buy that from an insurance company, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. Uh, so my point is, politically, I couldn't have gotten it done. I had to make a political leadership decision. Uh, I am a little unusual in that, as my wife, who is here, will tell you, we made a deal. I was going to run for three terms, and I was done with political office. So I was trying to get everything that I could done that I believe should be done, mm -hmm. and I wasn't beholden to the notion that this was going to be a career, and I had to keep everybody happy. So that was liberating for me. Having said that, most politicians who had a political career would have gone out and said, we've done the research, here it is, this is what it would cost, this is how we should do it, I believe in single payer, legislature go pass it. Mm -hmm. And it would have died in a legislature quickly and the governor would have said, those legislators are so incompetent, they've got no guts, why can't they pass single payers, the right thing to do. <laughs> this is Bernie Sanders' state, why aren't we doing this, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, I chose not to do that. I just felt that uh, really, this was my idea. Mm -hmm. I owned it, and I needed to own its failure. So I think what's on people's minds in here and watching from around the world is what's the relevance and lesson of Vermont for the rest of the country now, both in states and at the federal level? So in states, you have states from New York to California for whom single payer is now a hot issue to do as a state. Is there a lesson from the Vermont experience that should inform the people who are thinking about whether or not to do this in California and New York and elsewhere? So I'm such a believer that this is the right thing to do, that, that Americans shouldn't be choosing between adequate health care, good health care, and paying their mortgage, getting sneakers for the kids, putting food on the table, that I'm not going to take my experience and suggest that every other state would be have the same experience as Vermont. Yeah, I don't want to jinx it in that way. I will say this, the lesson is definitely that if you can get all 50 states, the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren plan is the smartest way to go because you can negotiate pharmaceutical costs as if they finally take on the industry, which is where there can be huge savings, medical equipment, you know, in other words, we've got to break the system of the money greed or we won't get there. Mm -hmm. Uh, having said that, you know, I got a call a few weeks ago from Governor Brown, one of the governors I love dearly. California. California. And governors have come close. And he called and he said, Peter, he said, tell me exactly what went on with single payer because we want to get it done here, but uh, I want to know about your experience. So I told him about my experience and said, you know, I'm a big supporter. You, you probably can do this because it's a bigger state. And he basically, you know, he said, thank you for the, all that information. Send me everything you've got. But he said, for similar reasons, we understand the obstacles you hit in Vermont. So, you know, there are two pieces here. One is much, the lesson is I was wrong. I don't think small states can go it alone. At least little states like Vermont with an unstable federal partnership. And if you don't believe in instability, I ask you to put in your head moving from a president like Barack Obama to a president like Donald Trump and the administration that comes with it. So that's an unstable federal partner. Uh, the second piece is, and I think it's important, 
cost containment. You've got to be able to contain costs in any system, federal or state, before you can sell legislators or congresspeople on moving to a tax finance system. What we did in Vermont, this is one of the best kept secrets because most of the press didn't understand it, is we got the first waiver to take Medicaid, Medicare, and private pay and put it all in one system where we pay providers based on outcomes instead of fee for service. If you could take those two things and make that work along with to be able to negotiate drug price, you could actually get a much more predictable, stable cost projection that would allow politicians to have the courage to move to a publicly financed system. Mm -hmm. So difficult to do at the state level, preferable federal, but let's talk about the federal. Uh, some people see a parallel between the Vermont experience and what's going on in D.C. with the Sanders legislation right now, which is you put forward the idea and the plan and then said, we'll talk about the financing several years down the road. And then when you looked at the financing, you realized it wasn't a sale to be made. Now we see in D.C. Bernie Sanders and his colleagues are putting forward a plan and they're saying, we'll talk about the financing later. Is there a parallel there? And it's just we haven't figured out how to communicate and be able to convince people when they look at the cost of making the transition that it's a feasible lift, either state or federal. Well, uh, there is a parallel there. Uh, probably the biggest arm that I had tied behind my back was that with all the other things I was doing as governor, whether it was Irene that came along where I literally had to spend a year just focusing on putting my state back together from a climate change induced storm to getting the first state to pass universal pre-K to making us a green, clean energy state, an example of how states should do energy. I mean, we were doing all kinds of other things, balancing budgets, doing all the things governors do. Um, my team was, and trying to get this damn exchange to work, which was a huge effort, my team was constantly pulled off of the job of getting the numbers, figuring out how it would work, and getting it to me. So as that delay happened, and it really was how it worked, it wasn't deliberate, it wasn't political, we just can't constantly, only if that big a team, were getting distracted from this huge mission of moving to a single payer system. I had to take my best single payer people that I hired and put them on Irene, put them on getting the damn exchange to work, you know, all these things that, which we eventually did. But my point is, um, it was a disadvantage not be able to say to Vermonters, this is what your tax rates would be, but you'd never pay a health care premium again. Now, you have to remember that that's a mixed blessing in America. When you have the biggest, the biggest obstacle to grassroots movement for the right thing to do, single payer in America, is employer-provided health care. Because if you say to most Americans, and I bet there are a lot of several in this room, family members, what do you pay for health care a year? They'll go, I don't know, my employer provides it. I just have a little bit taken out of my check. Well, that's a huge problem because what's driving, what should be driving change is the fact that costs are rising faster than we can sustain them. It's a jobs killer, which is I kept telling folks in Vermont, because we keep spending more and more on healthcare and less and less on rising wages in America as a result. This is the biggest jobs killer in America. Our competition has it baked into their tax system, not into the price of their car or the price of the refrigerator, so they're, or technology, so they're out competing us. And this will drown us 
the economic engine of America. I mean, this isn't just about health care. This is about your pocketbook. And the challenge we have in America is, you know, I liken this to civil unions and marriage equality because, you know, I often make the joke that Al Gore is claimed that Al Gore claimed that he invented the internet or helped invent the internet, and that's <laughs> highly debated. I can tell you that Vermont invented civil unions. We invented it, okay? And it was 15 years before anyone else or 12 years tried to do it, and people thought we were stark raving mad, and we had a political revolution, but we did it not because we wanted to take on a tough challenge. We did it because people were marching the streets, showing up at legislative hearings, saying, hey, how come because I have two moms, little kids in hearings, I don't have the same rights that your parents have where when one of them gets sick and they go to the hospital, the other one can't make the call of what happens in their future. Or all the other things that married couples, the benefits get. And, and we said, yeah, they're right. You know, this is a grassroots effort. We gotta move. People thought we were nuts. My point is, on healthcare, you don't have that grassroots because between provide, employer provided where no one has any idea what they get and the fact that activists tend to be under 35 and they think they're going to live forever, we've got a challenge getting the grassroots organized. And that was one of my problems as well. There's a, there's a principle in the newly emerging field of behavioral economics that says that people value hypothetical losses far more than they value hypothetical gains. Right. And some people wonder if that's actually at play here. For example, uh, Bill and Hillary Clinton in the early 1990s were saying, we're going to change health care for everybody. And a lot of 80% of people said, well, I like my health plan now. And it never came up for a vote. Uh, Barack Obama, when he passed the ACA, really narrowed it to say, look, we're just going to take care of the uninsured and people with pre-existing conditions. And if you like your care, you can keep it, which turned out to be controversial, but got him through the day. Um, now it's the Republicans who are threatening to take something away and saying, don't worry, we'll give you something better. Um, but isn't there a risk also with single payer of the same thing where you're saying, look, we're going to take away what you have and give you something much better, but a lot of people are going to be confused and scared and we see the numbers of the taxes. Well, so it's John, a, it's John, a tough sell. Where's that fall let apart? Let me tell you where I think it falls apart. I think it falls apart by a very simple premise, which is, you say to your family, raise your hand, and any Republican or Democrat, they won't do this, raise your hand if you'll give up on those high taxes and get rid of Medicare. How many hands go up? I mean, all oh, politicians run for cover. You're not taking, you're not taking my mother's health care away. One of the problems that Republicans are having now is, you know, they're going to repeal Obamacare. It's going to be easier. We're going to do it in the first two weeks, right? Well, that's not going so well. Why isn't it going so well? It's just like civil unions. We didn't pass civil unions just because a whole bunch of people sh showed up who, were, who, who didn't have rights and wanted rights. We passed civil unions because too many Republican and Democrats in Vermont and independents had a son or a daughter or a neighbor or a friend who didn't have the same rights as they did. And they thought that was wrong. They thought that was fundamentally wrong. The reason the Republicans can't pass Obama, kill Obamacare is you got 24 million Americans who suddenly have health insurance, finally, the biggest threat they had to their future, gone. They've got health insurance, that's a good plan, it's Medicaid. You try to take that away, it's not just the 24 million people, it's that every one of us mm -hmm. knows someone who's got a healthcare story to tell where they've now got that benefit. And the Republicans have admitted that's our big problem. How do the Republican governors are going, you're not taking that away from us. 
what do you guys, you say you're going to have a better plan, show it to us. Mm -hmm. And they keep churning and whirling and whirling and turling and they can't come up with a better plan. So my point is, single payer in America is not a mystery. Mom and dad have it. And what we have to do a better job of is convincing everybody else who's less than 65, this is killing your pocketbook. And the only way that America prospers is by finding a way to get everybody in so that we can finally tell the pharmaceutical industry and others, we're not going to be beholden to you. We're going to be beholden to our constituents. We're going to contain cost. And public financing will force you to finally contain cost mm -hmm. to take care of the patient but not the money machine that is unique to the American healthcare system. Mm -hmm. Colorado put single payer on the ballot in 2016, and it was voted down 20 to 80%. Is that a cautionary tale in addition to Vermont's experience? Well, look at California. I mean, they got where they are because of a referendum where it passed. Uh, you know, where there is more support for it. And I would argue that we're just talking demographics. And Colorado's a purple state. Uh, governor Hickenlooper is a great friend of mine, and he's a great governor. Uh, I don't think he'd tell you that he thinks that Colorado is going to be the springboard for single-payer health care. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, they're still fighting over guns out there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Some people have been concerned, as we're looking at what's going on on Capitol Hill right now, that uh, where, where there's this newly emergent bill to repeal and replace called Graham-Cassidy, right. that the conversation, though, robust conversation over the past week, uh, just this past week on single payer with the announcement of the Sanders plan, um, is a distraction from the important work of defending the gains that have been made and pushing sort of more incremental and realistic prospects in terms of building on and expanding that. Do you have any concern about that? Do you think that's a legitimate concern? You know, I really don't. I mean, I've known Senator Sanders for years. He's a friend. And what he's really good at is pushing the ball down the field. You know, if you, there is no better advocate in America than Senator Sanders for change. He makes the case in a way that no one else has made it and does make it. And my point is, I don't think that Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren are sitting down in Washington saying, wow, we're on a precipice, you know, team, we're going to come home with single payer, with Medicare for all. That's not what they're saying. I think what they're saying is, listen, we have a vision for where we need to go, but we're going to also focus on killing these terrible ideas that the Republicans continue to come up with, where they're in the pockets of big business, they take health care away from people that were given it, and they try to tell you that this is good for you. Mm -hmm. So I don't think you'll see them get distracted on the message, which is don't touch the coverage that we fought so hard for. Mm -hmm. Okay. So are you going to be involved in this moving forward? What are your own plans now that you're outside of the governor's suite? And how will you be engaged in all of this going forward, do you think? Well, you know, I think, you know, I'm out of politics, and I really mean it. Uh, I, I think there's different visions for God bless those fo these folks that can spend their lives in public service. I'm not one of them. Uh, having said that, um, I do think that the Vermont story should be an example of how a little state tried, learned, and the lesson should not be no. The lesson should be, hell yes, let's get it done, and let's do it right. Let's give this benefit to all Americans who get to get it when they're 65 years old anyway. And we've got to talk about jobs, economic security, our competitiveness in the world, and make this an economic issue, 
not a fringe lefty issue. That's our job. Okay. Those are great closing words. Thank you thank for you. being part of this. Thanks for pushing me down. Okay, thank Appreciate you. Appreciate it. Good thank to you see you again. Thank you. I'll be right here. Oh, good. Don't go away. This has been a Voices in Leadership production at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of the event at www.hsph.me voices. We encourage you to share Voices in Leadership.